You are listening to Red Hawk Media from the School of the Arts at Indiana University Northwest. The following program is a production of Lumpen Radio, WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. More information at lumpenradio.com. Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss the stunning revelations of the Pandora Papers, chewed over crime in 1970s Chicago, and learned how to get your garden ready for fall. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, the Biden Files, and new music from some of Chicago's top local artists. It's the Week in Review for October 8, 2021. Chuck Mertz chatted with journalist Michael Hudson on the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists' explosive Pandora Papers investigation. The Pandora Papers revealed how 35 sitting and former heads of state have hidden money in secretive tax shelters, how South Dakota has become a bigger tax haven than the Cayman Islands, and how British politicians have used illegal shelters to move beyond HMRC. The story is roiling the world. Find out more on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. So, Mike, why now? All of these revelations, Panama, Paradise, FinCEN, and now Pandora, have occurred in the last five years. So why now? Is there some uprising within the legal and financial services industry which facilitate offshore assets, shell companies, and tax havens rising up against the unfairness and inequality of their industries? What? Why now? Uh, you know, th- th- that, that's a good question, Chuck, but probably not one I can answer. I just know that, there, that there's definitely a continuing... Uh, outrage, concern, fear around the world about uh, inequality and about the sense that that political and economic elites are playing by a different set of rules. And so here we have, uh, you know, as exposed in the Panama Papers, but now once again in the Pandora Papers, we have uh, this global industry that helps uh, the rich and powerful make their own essentially make their own rules you know in many cases substituting the laws for another country a country that you've never maybe never even set foot in uh for the laws of your country when it comes to how much you pay in taxes what you do with your money and and that kind of thing do you think there might be any fear at all within the financial services or legal industries that facilitate these kind of tax havens that this could endanger their industries if these revelations continue and that they're concerned about this? Well, I think there's there's probably definitely fear. There's lots of concern. And, you know, one of the things we see in um, uh, the Pandora Papers is going back a few years, people going crazy within the industry about the Panama Papers and saying, oh my God, we, you know, let's stop uh, digitizing all our paper records. Let's not do that. Cause it could be another, you know, it could, we could end up with, with, you know, another, another Panama Papers like thing. But the other thing that's really interesting that we see in the Pandora Papers is that, you know, when one sort of offshore provider or one offshore jurisdiction comes under pressure because of a leak or because of some some government action, some you know international action. We're going to put you on a blacklist, that kind of thing. Uh, 
the other providers and other jurisdictions use that as a marketing opportunity. So they say, well, you, you know, Panama Papers, you got to get away from this law firm that, that's at the heart of the Panama Papers, Mossack Fonseca. We'll take you. Come to us. We're, you know, we're much safer. We, we won't let your data get, you know, get taken or don't go to Panama. You got to move your offshore company out of Panama. You know, come to come to Belize, come, you know, and oh, yeah come to South Dakota. We can talk more about that later. You know, uh, South Dakota has sort of uh, set itself set itself up as sort of a Caymans on the Great Plains uh, of America. So it, it, I think there's fear, there's concern, but it's also, you know, the, the history of, of, of offshore and the fight to rein it in or, or even end it has been uh, certain jurisdictions, certain providers get in trouble, and then the system evolves, the system morphs, the system takes advantage of that and just continues. And it's a little bit of a whack-a-mole. There are some jurisdictions that have, that have, that have uh, changed their laws under pressure from, from the big countries around the world, uh, but other jurisdictions pop up or other existing jurisdictions just sort of, you know, expand their market share when one goes down. So will they always be able to find a place where they can have tax havens, have tax shelters and keep their money uh, private and secret from their public? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know about always. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, to, to change this is going to be a long fight. There's a there's a quote, I, I think it was from a, like a former, you know, Chicago political wise, wise person who said, you know, uh, uh, you know, a mere spasms of reform didn't do anybody any good, never did anyone any good. Right. Uh, so it, it takes, you know, whenever there's a scandal, whenever, you know, uh, uh, there's a leak, whenever there's a big investigation, something gets revealed about offshore, there's lots of hand wringing and there's lots of promises made. And there are some reforms, laws are changed, uh, pro you know, but the truth is, is that the, that, uh, it's going to take really, you know, it's a global system. It's well entrenched. It's powerful. It has powerful allies, powerful, you know, many, as we show in, in the uh, Pandora Papers, there's lots of politicians who are using the system, the, the very people who could, you know, who could bring an end to the offshore system and are instead benefiting from it, stashing assets and com covert companies and trust while their governments do little to slow this global stream of illicit money that that really enriches criminals and it impoverishes nations so this story, um, this the, just real quick I, I'm, I'm sorry go ahead no no i'm just going to say so it, it's going to be it's going to take dramatic action and it's going to take you know people have to be if you really want change you have to be in it for the long haul you can't just announce some changes and say everything's better now you gotta you know you you, you really got to dig deep and you got to stay with it so is that to say that it's beyond reform I, I don't think it is. I mean, and, and there are certain things. I mean, one of the one of the most interesting things is, is that, you know, the United States has a really uh, distinctive position in the global financial system. The U.S. dollar is essentially the de facto currency of the world. Uh, uh, it's easier to, you know, it's easier to do transactions around the world in U.S. dollars. And, and you know, actually for money launders, they love the U.S. dollar because if you can change a local currency or, you know, your, your country's, one country's currency into dollars, that's actually part of the money laundering process. The, the money is a bit cleaner if it's now in dollars and can move around the world. But what's interesting is, is that if you want to move dollars around the world, you can't just send, you know, you can't, you know, do a transaction, move stuff from a bank account in Lebanon to a bank account in Belgium 
directly. Technically, all those transactions have to go through a New York banking operation of a big global bank. Uh, they get a special license from the U.S. Treasury Department. So it has to go through New York. You know, so it would go from Lebanon to New York to Belgium. Right. So what that does is is. is so, so, and that's that's the vast majority because of the U.S. dollars, you know, dominance. That that means that the vast majority of international transactions are coming right through New York, and that the biggest banks in the world that have operations there, uh, you know, have eyeballs on that. And we saw with our previous investigation, the FinCEN files, that uh, J.P. Morgan, HSBC, and other banks with big operations in, in you know, in, in, in Lower Manhattan, basically. Um, you know, they were turning a blind eye to lots of lots of dirty transactions, lots of really suspect transactions. You know, a shell company in Cyprus moving a hundred million dollars to another shell company in Belize, that kind of thing. And so there's really a choke point there. So a lot of the money, not all of it, but a lot of the dirty money, and not, not everything that's going through New York, of course, is dirty money, but a lot, but 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 if most, I, my, my sense is, is that probably most of the dirty money in the world is going right through these big banks in New York. So if they did a better job of vetting, you know, uh, who was moving money, where the money was going, and really just saying no, if, if the transaction is, is sort of clearly suspect and there's no uh, transparency on who is actually sending the money and who is actually receiving the money, that could be if, if, if the U.S. government truly cracked down on these folks and forced them to truly do do real due diligence, real anti-money laundering checks on some of these bigger transactions, that would be a huge difference. A huge so, so there is this this interesting choke point, which it wouldn't be the only solution, but it could be a big part of the solution uh, if uh, the U.S. government got truly serious about taking on these big banks instead of sort of giving them, you know, they, they find some of the big banks for doing this, for moving dirty money and violating anti-money laundering uh, standards. But the fines are, are basically like a, like a parking ticket, a cost of doing business. Uh, and and uh, there have also been threats that we're going to criminally prosecute you. There have been some uh, what they call deferred criminal prosecutions, uh, deferred, deferred prosecution agreements. But, you know, the banks have kind of just they've kind of just sort of yawned about those and said, oh, yeah, yeah. And then they just sort of move on and continue to do business uh, as the FinSign file showed us pretty much as, as, as usual. So until they are held criminally responsible, do you think this kind of unfair financial s- system will continue? Um, that, that, that seems, that seems uh, very likely. Yes. And, and that, again, that's not the only solution, but it could be a big part of any sort of, package of solutions worldwide. And as long as the dollar is dominant, will the financial system stay unfair? Um, well, you know, I think it's a, a it's a double-edged sword because because of the dominance of the US dollar, there is the potential to actually make a big dent in, in what's happening. Uh, but yes, because, but, but on the other hand, because of the US dollar and the fact that the US has not uh, crack down on this in a way that that has brought real change, then, you know, that 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 uh, uh, contributes to the problem. Right. Uh, so this story broke on Sunday on my birthday. So happy birthday to me. Happy birthday. And Mike, I was very uh, surprised there was no coverage in Monday's edition, a print edition of the New York Times. It wasn't until Tuesday that it made page eight of section A without any mention on the front page. They actually had more column inches, Mike, dedicated to a story on stem cells and hair loss. 
Mike, to you, <laughs> why are the Pandora Papers so significant? What makes this leak so important, even more important than the earlier leaks when it comes to Panama, Paradise, or FinCEN? Well, partly it's just because this is a it, it, it's a bigger, more global, broader, deeper leak of records. Uh, it's it's the most information. If you go by terabytes, it's two two. 2.94 terabytes, which, which you know, uh, some people understand what that means, but just let's say it, that's a lot. And, you know, the, the the Panama Papers came from one law firm, Mossack Fonseca, which did a lot of business around the world. There were a lot of records. There was a lot of really interesting stuff in there. But this uh, leak, the Pandora Papers, actually comes from 14 offshore service providers from the South China Sea uh, to, to the Persian Gulf, uh, to, to the Caribbean. Uh, you know, so these are providers all around the country and they really give you insight into what's, what's going on in the world. And, and the other thing is, is that, um, and, and, and much more data we've been able to get on the number of, of the owner, the real owners behind offshore companies. Uh, we've got, we, we, we were able to document at least 29,000 owners of offshore companies around the world through the Pandora Papers. And that's more than more than twice what we had in the Panama Papers. And then the other thing is there's just many more journalists. The, the, the uh, uh, Panama Papers had about 375 journalists involved. The Pandora Papers has more than 600 journalists from 150 news outlets uh, in, in uh, uh, 100, I think 117 countries. So when you have that many news organizations, and we're talking about some really big ones like The Guardian and the BBC and The Washington Post as a partner here in the U.S., uh, it's really hard for policymakers to turn a blind eye. So there's already some some legislation uh, that, that 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 we've been told is going to be introduced in Congress uh, on Friday that will will address a lot of the a lot of the issues that we've been raising about transparency and about money laundering and around the world.
Boys from I-94 chatted with Bob Hartley about his noir North and Central. Set in an Austin neighborhood in transition in 1979, Hartley tells the seamy story of cops on the take, factory workers in decline, and how Jane Byrne infamously lost the city. I-94, Lumpen's award-winning books and literature show, airs Thursdays and Sundays at 11 a.m. Bob, this is a uh, kind of a neo-noir uh, book, and I- I happen to be a big fan of crime fiction. I kind of wanted to start off with the time period that you chose to set this book in. Now, I'm assuming you grew up on the west side of our city in the 1960s and 1970s. But was there a reason you chose to set this around 1978, 1979? Yeah, well, I, uh, as you mentioned, I did grow up in the 60s and 70s in that area. So I'm familiar with it. But also, it was an interesting time in that there was a great cultural and economic shift going on in that neighborhood, um, as, as I think the, the book um, elaborates upon. And just the, uh, the, the unease of that and the anxiety that it created in almost everyone I knew living there. So um, I think that winter... Uh, epitomizes that, that anxiety, that, that unease that was going on. Yeah, and for and people who, yeah, just, just to elaborate for people who are not in Chicago, what Bob is referring to was a transition of that neighborhood from, as I recall, majority white to majority uh, black, Latino. Uh, it was part of some of the great white flight that this city has seen. It was Austin. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, in Austin. Is, yeah. That, is that the infamous right, Jane right. Byrne winter? 1978? I yeah, believe it was, Bob. I wasn't here in 1978, but what, that no, was... No, no, 79 was the great blizzard, right, Bob? Is it when they didn't... Right, play? well, it's, it's, I believe it's set in 78, 79 that winter, Oh, okay. and that was the great blizzard. And what's occurring is also, that was the winter of John Wayne Gacy, where they discovered that he had murdered so many young men, and um, also that the, the uh, transition of the neighborhood was was going to occur if it wasn't in the midst of occurring. So it's going from, primar- again, primarily from Europe, the descendants of European immigrants to an African-American, primarily an African-American neighborhood. And also there was the demise of Zenith, which was uh, the major uh, employer of the area, which uh, manufactured uh, televisions. So uh, a lot of things were culminating at that time. I actually have a a Zenith radio that was my grandfather's, That's a tube amazing. radio made in Chicago. It still works. Yeah, the tube radios yeah. were great. Yeah, I listen, I listen to Sox games on it. It's, yeah, it's still <laughs> good. You know, Bob, the reason I actually asked you was because um, I, I also write crime fiction. Uh, it's kind of a family business. And one of the things that has been frustrating about writing crime fiction set now is cell phones because it takes away so many things that you used to not be able to get away with you know, with with phone tracking and with the fact that you can be much more easily located. And I didn't know whether that played into your decision to focus on that period at all. No, not really, because um, I was more interested in that time period simply, uh, again, more from an economic and social standpoint than anything else than, than, than a technological one. Okay. That's that's one thing that I really liked about the book. So to be clear to listeners, this is an, a novel, North and Central, that that Bob wrote, and uh, all this stuff is it, it's it's there in the background, like that you know the uh, uh, the bar is where 
or a bar is where most of the action takes place. The t- story is told by a bar mm-hmm. owner. Zenith workers are, provide a lot of the business for the bar, bar owner. Um, and there's there's all this stuff that's kind of briefly mentioned uh, about you know the workers starting to lose jobs and uh, there, there's a line in there. I think it's about like a mayor losing their job for not plowing the streets, which I think is a reference to Mayor Byrne. Um, and so you have like all the uh, the socioeconomic factors of the city, but it's just it's just a background set for the main story because your main story really pushes moves hard. And of course, it's set in a bar that um, we I think today we would call a dive bar. You know what I mean? It's it's definitely catering to uh, working class, lower working class, some some down and out drunks as well. It reminds me of uh, uh, the bar on Ashland and Forty Third. It's been there forever. Do you know which one I'm talking about? They, Back of the they, yards. Have the, they have the lunch special. Yeah, the lunch yeah, special. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's probably a million bars in Chicago like like yeah, that. I can't yeah. think of their names to be. Yeah. Bob, I wanted to ask you something. Um, Obviously, from that neighborhood, I think you did a good job. You know, we don't hear a lot about, like, the decimation of the working class in America anymore. You know, everything we don't talk about. We like to talk about class on here. And you, you've portrayed a very specific class of people. We're in Bridgeport, um, the radio show, and we, you know, this area had that similar demographics which is also changing but it's it's getting more expensive um yeah. in that regard i were you immersed in this this is how you grew up I mean, what did your mom and dad do i was just curious because you seem to really I, I grew up in a blue collar we all grew up in blue collar houses and i think you had a you really nailed that era and the the language of that of the working class because a lot of people have a hard time doing that yeah, well, my dad worked for a small bank and uh, actually in Berwyn, and it was a family owned bank and um, he worked for them. And uh, but before that, he had worked as uh, actually he sold insurance door to door. And before that, he worked for the streets and sanitation department. And uh, so he had done a lot of different jobs. Um, my mother worked for uh, United Charities as a, a typist, really. Um, and but, <clears throat> pardon me. And but the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, most of the people I I grew up with were in the trades or worked in a factory or uh, were you know worked for the city. Uh, as it, you know, the person across the street from me, I grew up. Uh, I grew up in. Uh, central austin on chicago avenue and uh i grew up in a street called menard and right across the street was a bar that was owned by uh it was owned by this couple they had 11 children and lived upstairs in a two-bedroom apartment they were uh, my family's best friends and the father was a police officer so he couldn't own the bar legally so the mother owned the bar and she ran the bar so that gives you an idea of the kind of place that I grew up. Uh, and the, the bar that I, I based I used in the book was a bar I actually went to. It was open till four o'clock in the morning. They had a four o'clock license, so it was open till five on Saturday. And it was, you know, it, you could have like just really down and out alcoholics. Um, there were factory workers. There was all kinds of people that went in there, and including myself. And uh, I attended a bar for like 16 years. So it, I had that background and that's where it comes from. Uh, I'm, you know, the, it, when I read Nelson Algren, it was the first time I thought, and I was a, 
I think I was 15. And it was the first time I thought, well, I can actually write about people around me. Were you, are you because talking I had about never really more? experienced that before. You know, I was like, oh, oh, I can I can write about the people around me. They're interesting. You know, they don't have to be from the middle class or upper middle class or affluent. You know. Well, that's we're losing a lot of that these days with MFA programs because you have to have money to get an MFA. Generally, I'm general speaking right. general terms, and it's it's always nice to read a, a novel based on the working class that's not completely stereotypical. Yeah. Well, it, well it, thanks. It, you you were talking about Jeremy how um, how it nailed it, how believable it is, and I think that's a testament to to good fiction writing. You know, I was in it. I, I, I'm not gonna ask you about, but it 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 makes a reader think that did this is this autobiography? You know, because it's 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 you're so immersed in it. But Bob, I, did you rob a currency exchange? <laughs> 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 but I did want to no! ask. <laughs> a lot of the uh, a lot of the language that's used is uh, uh, not politically correct. And you know it's it's well, it's, it's how accurate it, it's, for the seventies. I would say, yeah, absolutely. Right. I don't say that as a condemnation. I say that as like, thank goodness, it, this is being written this way. This is what it actually feels like to be in this city at, in, in in these circumstances. But I was wondering if you got any heat uh, for that from you know publishers. If you, um, no, actually, I was lucky with this publisher. Cool, cool. Because he he. Uh, uh, Jerry Brennan, his name, he, he runs Tortoise Books. And he's more interested in, in publishing books that he likes to read, to be, be, to be honest with you. Yeah. So he started reading. He said, wow, this voice is really strong. It's an interesting story. So he published it. And he worked on it with me a bit. And uh, But there was no censorship of language. Oh, there was cool. no attempt to censor it. <laughs> This week on The Biden Files, Biden's ambitious agenda hangs by a thread as two Democrats balk, Mitch McConnell plays chicken with default, Facebook is implicated in the January 6th riot, a judge blocks Texas's new abortion law, Biden's popularity continues to ebb, and a massive data leak shows just how much money the ultra-wealthy have stolen. These are The Biden Files. Day 255, October 1st. President Joe Biden's trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure plan suffered a significant setback when House Democratic leaders put off a planned vote on a crucial plank of their domestic agenda. A deal appeared far off, and the delay was a humiliating blow to Biden and Democrats who had spent days toiling to broker a deal between their parties' feuding factions and corral the votes needed to pass the bills. The president has staked his reputation as a dealmaker on the success of both the public works package and a far more ambitious social policy bill. The fates of both bills are now uncertain. One roadblock appears to be Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who said he would not pass a $3.5 trillion bill. Manchin's vote is critical, and he appears to be holding the bill hostage to protect the oil and gas interests who would be affected by a massive spend on climate change. Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema, meanwhile, left Washington for a medical appointment and a scheduled fundraiser. It is unclear what Sinema is holding out for. She has become a lightning rod for criticism. During a meeting with the Democratic caucus, President Biden threw his weight behind the progressive wing, saying that the vote on infrastructure ain't gonna happen unless Democrats agree on the second bill, adding that a bill smaller than $3.5 trillion can make historic investments. 
Biden said after the meeting, quote, we're going to get this done. It doesn't matter when, it doesn't matter whether it's in six minutes, six days, or six weeks, we are going to get it done. Meanwhile, Congress gave final approval to a spending bill that would extend federal funding through early December and provide emergency aid to support the resettlement of Afghan refugees and disaster recovery efforts across the nation. That legislation passed 254 to 175, clearing it for President Biden's signature before funding lapses. The Senate earlier passed the legislation on a 65 to 35 margin, with 15 Republicans joining all Democrats. However, the bill just kicks the can down the road as Democrats struggle to rally the troops to pass a new and massive spending bill. And the strange recount commissioned by Arizona Republicans took another wild turn when veteran election experts charged that the very foundation of its findings, the results of a hand count of 2.1 million ballots, was based on numbers so unreliable they appear to be guesswork rather than tabulations. The organizers of the review said, quote, made up the numbers. The experts, a data analyst for the Arizona Republican Party and two retired executives of an election consulting firm in Boston, said that in their report, the workers for the investigators failed to count thousands of ballots in a pallet of 40 ballot-filled boxes delivered to them in the spring. The three election experts said the hand count could have missed thousands or even hundreds of thousands of ballots if all 1,600 boxes of ballots were similarly undercounted. These findings were earlier reported in the Arizona Republic. And Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh tested positive for COVID. Kavanaugh has no symptoms and has been fully vaccinated since January. The Supreme Court is to begin its new term on Monday. Day 256, October 2nd. The U.S. death toll from COVID surpassed 700,000 this weekend, exceeding the population of the city of Boston and demonstrating a continuing divide in America. Almost all COVID deaths now are in the unvaccinated population, which directly correlates to states that voted for Trump in the last election. Florida has suffered by far the most deaths. Texas is second. Those two states account for 15% of the country's population, but more than 30% of the U.S.'s total deaths. The grim stats overshadowed a good news that a new pill developed by Merck appears to effectively stave off the worst symptoms of COVID if taken soon enough. A whistleblower has accused Facebook of contributing to election misinformation and the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. While, quote, Facebook has publicized its work to combat misinformation and violent extremism relating to the 2020 election and insurrection, the whistleblower Francis Haugen said, in reality, Facebook knew its algorithms and platforms promoted this type of harmful content and it failed to deploy internally recommended or lasting countermeasures. Haugen added that following the election, Facebook disbanded its civic integrity team, which was responsible for protecting the democratic process and tackling misinformation. Facebook over and over again has shown it now chooses profit over safety. Trump asked a federal judge to force Twitter to temporarily reinstate his account while he sues to permanently return to the social media network. Trump's request for a preliminary injunction against Twitter was filed late Friday in Miami, Florida. Trump, who lost his bid for a second term in office, claims Twitter canceled his account under pressure from his political rivals. Twitter declined to comment on the filing. Trump had more than 88 million followers on Twitter. Trump used Twitter and other social media platforms to falsely and repeatedly claim that the election had been rigged against him. A federal judge questioned Texas's defense of the nation's most restrictive abortion law following a Justice Department emergency petition to block it. U.S. District Judge Robert Pittman asked why Texas went to such great lengths to create a very unusual law aimed at hindering judicial review if it's, quote, so confident in the constitutionality of the limitations on a woman's access to abortion. 
and Rudy Giuliani admitted under oath that his evidence of voter fraud in the election came from unvetted posts on Facebook and other social media platforms. Eric Coom is suing Giuliani for defamation. Giuliani publicly claimed that Coomer helped rig the election for Biden. Giuliani admitted he got some of his information about Coomer's alleged role in the non-existent election fraud from social media, but wasn't sure if it came from Facebook or another platform. Quote, those social media posts are all one to me, said Giuliani. Day 257, October 3rd. In a massive leak, terabytes of data revealing a secretive financial ecosystem used by the ultra-wealthy and heads of state have been obtained by global journalists. Those documents, nicknamed the Pandora Papers, show that there is a secretive offshore system used to hide billions of dollars from tax authorities, creditors, criminal investigators, and in some cases, countries' own citizens. In key revelations, King Abdullah II of Jordan has hidden hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate in Malibu, California. Vladimir Putin has reportedly used a woman he reportedly had a secret child with as a wallet. The current leaders of the Czech Republic, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, Chile, Ukraine, the UAE, and Ecuador, as well as prominent members of the Tory party in Britain, were also implicated. In a damaging disclosure, the state of South Dakota has been shown to be operating as a secretive trust that rivals shelters in the Caribbean. The leaks did not add much to not already known about the finances of the wealthiest Americans. A Texas judge has ruled that right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones is legally responsible for all damages caused by his false claims that Sandy Hook's school shooting was a giant hoax. Judge Maya Guerrero-Gamble issued default judgments against Jones and his website Infowars for not complying with court orders to provide documents and evidence supporting his claims that the shooting was a false flag operation carried out by crisis actors. And the Supreme Court has declined to block New York City's requirement that public school teachers receive COVID vaccinations. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom announced his state will require vaccines for all school children ages 12 to 17 once the FDA grants full approval, making California the first to move forward on mandating vaccines for school children. Day 258, October 4th. Tens of thousands of women poured into American streets on Saturday to protest Texas's new effective ban on abortion in that state. More than 650 marches took place in all 50 states, including thousands downtown in Chicago. While the inaugural Women's March drew an estimated 4 million protesters into streets across the country in outrage at the inauguration of Trump, annual events since then have struggled to maintain momentum. However, the Texas law and a Supreme Court decision allowing it to take effect seems to have been a galvanizing issue nationwide. Mitch McConnell sent a letter to President Joe Biden demanding that congressional Democratic leaders raise the debt ceiling unilaterally because Republicans will not support the effort to lift the borrowing limit. Quote, since mid-July, Republicans have clearly stated that Democrats will need to raise the debt limit on their own, McConnell wrote in a letter to Biden. We have simply warned that since your party wishes to govern alone, it must handle the debt limit alone as well. Biden responded by saying McConnell is playing Russian roulette with the U.S. economy. Quote, not only are Republicans refusing to do their job, they are threatening to use their power to prevent us from doing our job. It's hypocritical, dangerous, and disgraceful. Their obstruction and irresponsibility knows no bounds. Biden added that more than a quarter of U.S. debt, about $8 trillion, was incurred during the reckless tax and spending policies of the Trump administration. And the defaulting on the debt would lead to a self-inflicted wound that takes our economy over a cliff. When asked whether he could guarantee the U.S. wouldn't default on the nation's debt, Biden answered, no, no, I can't. That's up to Mitch McConnell. The Biden administration revoked a Trump-era rule that barred health clinics that received federal funds from advising people about ending their pregnancies. 
The Department of Health and Human Services said it will restore the federal family planning program to the way it ran under the Obama administration. The new rule will go into effect on November 8th. And beginning today, the U.S. Post Office began deliberately slowing mail service. About 40% of first-class mail will now see slower delivery under Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's restructuring plan to cut costs. Letters now could take up to five days to reach their destinations. Day 259, October 5th. World leaders denied wrongdoing after multiple heads of state were outed as hiding assets in a huge leak of financial documents from offshore companies. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Jordan's King Abdullah II are among some 35 current and former leaders linked to the Pandora Papers. South Dakota has been revealed as a near $400 billion tax haven. The conservatives in England have also been named as aggressive users of the shields. Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema condemned last week's delayed vote on infrastructure, calling it a failure and deeply disappointing for communities. Representative Pramila Jayapal said that progressives were willing to scale back some components of the legislation to reach a compromise, but said that West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin's request to spend no more than $1.5 trillion is not going to happen. Biden told House Democrats that after negotiations with moderates, he expects the cost to fall around $2.5 trillion. In a letter to Senate Democrats, Chuck Schumer said he wanted to reach a final deal within a matter of days, not weeks. COVID appears to be in retreat in the United States, giving hope that the vaccination program is finally taking hold in America. The number of new daily cases in the U.S. has fallen 35% since September 1st. Alaska, however, is currently experiencing a crush of patients in hospitals, and New York State's largest health care provider said that it had fired 1,400 of its employees who refused to get vaccinated against COVID. Day 260, October 6th. A whistleblower who provided documents to the Wall Street Journal and CBS showing that Facebook's involvement in the January 6th Capitol riot was deeper than known, told Congress that Senate action and regulation are needed. Francis Haugen, a former project manager for that company, said bluntly that Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy, and the company's leadership knows ways to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't because they have put immense profits before people. Democrats began a flurry of private talks to narrow their differences over the size of President Joe Biden's sweeping safety net bill, as liberals indicated they're willing to make sizable concessions in the size of what could be the most far-reaching social legislation in years. Biden reportedly signaled a range of $2.5 trillion, significantly lower than his initial $3.5 trillion plan. Liberals are now looking for closer to $3 trillion, mindful that that amount is spending over a decade. It is unclear whether Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia or Kristen Sinema of Arizona would agree to a figure in this range. And Florida is the lone state yet to submit a plan to the Education Department on how it will use federal COVID-19 relief funds for schools. The state's plan is required before more than $2.3 billion in federal aid can be released to Floridian schools. Meanwhile, Arizona was ordered to stop using federal pandemic funding on a pair of grant programs only available to schools without mask mandates. Day 261, October 7th. A federal judge has temporarily blocked a near total ban on abortion in Texas following a challenge brought by President Joe Biden's administration. That action by U.S. District Judge Robert Pittman in Austin prevents the state of Texas from enforcing the Republican-backed law, which prohibits women from obtaining an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. In a sharply worded ruling, Pittman said, quote, from the moment SB 8 went into effect, women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their own lives in ways that are protected by the Constitution. The court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. 
Manhattan case is part of a fierce legal battle over abortion access in the U.S. Numerous states are pursuing restrictions on the procedure. The Supreme Court is set to hear arguments on a consequential Mississippi abortion law this week. The Senate postponed a vote to suspend the nation's debt limit after Republicans plan to filibuster the effort for the third time in two weeks. Mitch McConnell and Republican lawmakers continue to block debate on the legislation as part of their opposition to Biden's economic agenda. Biden said it is now a real possibility Democrats will revise the Senate's filibuster rules to overcome that blockade on raising the debt ceiling. Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, however, remain opposed to changing the filibuster rules. Manchin called any speculation that he would support changing the filibuster theatrics, but added, we are not going to default as a country. Late Thursday, Republicans appeared to blink, with McConnell offering to allow Democrats to temporarily raise the debt ceiling through December, but refusing to lift the blockade of a long-term increase. Senate Democrats signaled they would accept the offer, setting up a vote as soon as this week on a short-term debt patch. A new Senate report details how Trump tried to install a loyalist as acting attorney general to carry out aggressive investigations into his unfounded claims of election fraud. Top leaders of the Justice Department warned Trump that they and other senior officials would resign en masse if Trump followed through. That included the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, who called it, quote, a murder-suicide pact. Also, the California Bar Association is investigating the conduct of John Eastman, an advisor to Trump who mapped out a controversial legal strategy to overturn the election results. The investigation centers on Eastman's alleged role in pressing Vice President Mike Pence not to count electoral votes on January 6th and not to certify President Biden as the winner. Eastman is reported to have mapped out what the Department of Justice called a long-shot legal strategy that would have allowed Pence only to certify the results he wished to, which would have defied the Constitution. Meanwhile, Trump praised Pence for downplaying the riot, saying an interview on Fox News, quote, very much destroys and discredits the unselect committee's witch hunt. Pence, during the interview, blamed the media for distracting from Biden's failed agenda by focusing on one day in January, adding that, quote, they want to try to use that one day to try and demean the character and intention of 74 million Americans. Los Angeles moved to require most people to provide proof of full vaccination to enter any indoor business in that state. The move by L.A. County and approved by the city council is one of the nation's strictest vaccine rules. The new law will take effect on November 4th. New York is reportedly considering a similar rule. 38% of Americans approve of the job Joe Biden is doing as president, his lowest approval rating since taking office. 53% disapprove. 44% of Republicans said they would like Trump to run for president in 2024. These are the Biden Files. Mike Nowak and Peggy Malecki chatted with gardening expert Melinda Myers about fall gardening tips, preparing your beds for spring, and what to do with all those leaves. The Mike Nowak Show, one of Lumpen's newest offerings, airs every Sunday at 8 a.m. Let's talk about the fall garden. What, and the first thing that you write about in the article in Natural Awakenings Chicago um, is leaves, or are leaves. Um, and why is that, Melinda? Well, you know, in the Midwest especially, but really anywhere across the country, you can really see uh, that's one of the biggest projects we have in the fall. And a lot of people break out the rake. And for kids, it's great to jump in that pile that you just raked into a nice neat pile. Then the kids jump in and spread them all over. And you remember how much fun it was, right? 
But mm -hmm. we've got this bad habit of thinking they're bad things, that leaves are something we need to get off the property and have the city haul away. And that's the worst thing we could do. It's a great resource and it's free. And keeping it on our property is a good way to put that resource to use. So on your lawn, shred it with your mower and leave them on. If they're the size of a quarter, it won't hurt your lawn. I put my bagger on, um, not so much now, I don't have many trees, they're all in the woods, so I just leave all the leaves there. But when I was in the city, I would bag them and then use them as mulch so I didn't have to rake them. And so I yeah. collect them and spread them on the soil surface. And one of the things they do besides conserving moisture, um, suppressing weeds, is they provide insulation for a lot of um, ground bees over winter in the ground. Frogs and toads are underground, so that layer of leaves is great for those of us, especially living in cold climates. So it's a good excuse to be a little less neat and tidy in your landscape by leaving those leaves mm -hmm. in the garden area, off the plant crowns, but on the soil surface. Uh, you're getting to um, a nerve, uh, which okay. is the idea of neatness in the garden. Oh. I think... Oh, yeah. <sighs> Okay, we're not. Most people do not grow Versailles in their backyard. Okay, uh, I think neatness is anathema to um, healthy soils and we healthy grow versatility in our backyards. And healthy Versailles. and a healthy habitat. Yeah. Uh, so, um, how do you get people out of that crazy neatness freak uh, mode? Because uh, you know, I our, my next door neighbor on actually on that side. Um, yeah, I get that work. I know. Uh, <laughs> um, just, she just chopped down all of the cup plants that were up, I mean, to the ground and just wiped them out and they were gore. Now they were, had already started to go to seed. I, you know, I might get that, but, but then she does that with everything and the hedge and yeah, the lawn. Don't and, leave the seeds for, for the birds. Right. There's nothing. And, and I think. When I lived in the city too, um, now I'm out in the country, so my neighbors don't really care because you know it's a whole different environment out here. But in the city, I was the one that left all my plants stand for winter. Mm -hmm. In my first book I wrote, I talked about leaving your perennial stand. And I remember I was teaching at the time and a graphic art instructor said, yeah, I read your book. You know, that whole thing about leaving your plant stand, I think you're just lazy. He goes, but I tried it. And my neighbor had two big spruces and he lived in a very urban area. And he said the birds would be in his neighbor's trees and then come down and feed on the seeds. And he goes, it was excellent. It was great. I had all this activity in my winter garden. I still think you're lazy, but <laughs> I understand now why you do it. And so I think part of it is trying to find out what's going to make people change those habits. So they may not be the same thing you and I are. You know, they may think we're lazy because we're leaving it stand. My daughter, when she was little, would always say, we have the messiest yard in the, in the area. And But she, as an adult, sees it. My gardens always looked beautiful in spring. She enjoyed yeah. the birds that came to visit. All the insects, she and her friends would go on bug hunts in my tiny little city lot. And so finding what really you know gets people excited and it's different. So maybe it's like, oh, I'm busy in the fall. I don't have time. And, you know, late spring, early summer, we usually have a little more time. We want to get out and start cleaning up the yard. There's a little more time and letting those pollinators emerge before we cut back the garden. 
you know, we're dying to get out there and do something in the spring. In the fall, we're bringing in pots if you're in the cold climates. We're bringing in our hoses. We're trying to close things down. And so by extending that winter interest, it brings in the birds that, oh, without the birds, winters would be very dreary here, right? This week, we debut a new single from Chicago's own bird and butterfly. Paul Kim and Francis Kang craft a heady melange of pop, folk, and R&B with electronic and cinematic elements. Their debut single has already gained praise on public radio. And here it is. This is Monarch.
Download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. From um, someone named uh, uh, Peter Maris. Uh, they do not have their blue check mark from Twitter, um, but they are on Twitter. So hopefully this they're is... yeah. Hopefully they're trying to get it. Yeah, of course. I mean, who doesn't want it? But <clears throat> he, he's he posits or really questions. Explain to me how trees are of any help whatsoever, specifically with regard to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's in parentheses. Leaving out the fact that you need a huge new forest for them to have the desired effect. In a century or so, the tree is dead, decomposes, or is burnt, and the CO2 is right back in the atmosphere. Um, and this is, of course, replying to Elon Musk in a wider discussion that I'm not privy to. Mm -hmm. um, but let's turn that over to Mr. Dweebson. Uh, what do you think of this? Is this person onto something with regards to forests and their roles in regulating uh, the climate? This is uh, another. Uh, this is another example of how the, the, why you can't trust people who don't have blue checks on Twitter. It's mm. an example of uh, an immediate example of that they know what they're talking about. Unlike this person, who clearly has no understanding of the chrono significance of trees and the mm. way that you can use logging to not only uh, finance enormous amounts of, of paper markets, but you can also use logging to track things. And this person would get rid of logging entirely. Well, Ridiculous. Uh, that's, uh, could, you, could you touch on that just a tiny bit more in terms of logging um, and, and natural and, logging and, 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 and chrono, chrono consulting? Uh, what's the intersection there? Well, the, uh, the chrono logging these days involves waiting until, say, the year 2050 and chopping down a forest, but then returning to year 2049 and chopping it down then as well. Then you can log the forest twice, and you can go back in time and do this over and over and over, mm -hmm. making every forest infinitely more valuable than it is without chrono logging. That's, that is fascinating. I've always heard, I have always heard the phrase... Uh, a man cannot log the same forest twice, for he is not the same man, and that is not the same forest. But with this new technology, you, you, you're saying you can very much do that, and that changes a lot of what we think about in science. Yes, even chrono finance allows you to even subvert classic parables that have existed since the dawn of humanity. As they ought to be. All things ought to be subverted, 100%. Uh, Dr. Imogen, what is your take on this? Do you, how do you feel about this statement? Is, uh, I mean, can you hear me? Yes. It's coming in through. A... Can you hear me? Yes. Are you, uh, Dr. Imogen, are you there? Dr. Imogen, I think they might have entered into some. Surrounded by trees. There are roughly 420 trees for every person. Incredible. So that means there are. 3.04 trillion trees. Now, this is, okay. this is, I, I, I'm going I'm to take your word on so this. Far. I'm going to take your word these on this. And all of these trees are 5,000 years old. You say this can't be possible. I tell you it's true. But I... all these trees are the same tree. They're clones of a tree, and you're just seeing a picture of a tree, which is a frequency, a hologram. So what do you think about this, all, this all science? These, so all, all matter is just light. 
slowed down to a slower extent. That's fascinating, Dr. Imogen. Mm-hmm. I it's a matter of trees. We are trees. I cherish your wisdom so much. Um, Dr. Imogen, what do you think about CO2? Uh, some nitrogen, right? Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.